2: We're back with more Inside the Clubhouse with Bruce Levine and David Haw on Sports Radio 670 The Score and 670thescore.com, a radio.com sports station presented by Bet Rivers Sportsbook.
3: We've got a good first hour. That's fun. Who needs baseball, right? Bruce David Haw, Bruce Levine here inside the Clubhouse, Chicago Sports Radio. 670 to score. Time now to go out to our guest hotline sponsored by Circa Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book and that's where we find the senior writer for MLB Pipeline, our good friend Jim Callis. Good morning, Jim. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. You know, hopefully, hoping for the best with the Major League Baseball and the Players Union uh, talking obviously this weekend down to the ninth inning, if you will, but as that goes on in the, in the back background and as a deadline looms we do have minor league minicamps on both sides of town out in arizona a lot of hope for the future a lot of uh, we just talked to pete crow armstrong had a good conversation with the cubs outfield prospect who came over in the javi Baez trade i'd like to start that you know, obviously he's coming off an injury obviously he's got a long way to go but um what are the reasonable expectations for him this year in terms of his development
0: yeah, I mean, you know, he's not going to be a guy who who races to the big leagues because he lost that, that first full season in pro ball with an injury to his non throwing shoulder, but I, I may have told you guys this before. At the, at the trade deadline last year, I was talking to an executive who is not with the Cubs or the Mets, who thought that the Mets had made the worst trade of the deadline by giving him up to get Javi Baez and Trevor Williams. The guy just could not believe that they did that for a couple months of Javi Baez. And, and, he, and he liked Javi Baez, but he just thought that was too much of a give, and You know, there was a time, I'd say the summer before the 2020 draft, when Pete Crow Armstrong was considered the best high school prospect in the draft. And he didn't have a a great summer. It wasn't terrible, but he didn't have a great summer. And so that's why he went 19th instead of higher in the draft. But he was one of the best pure hitters in that high school draft class. I think he was probably the best outfield defender in that entire draft. I mean, he can run and he has really good instincts. Um, and I think you know he's a potential Gold Glover. We just put him on our, we just did an all defense team for the minor leagues, and he was on our all defense team. Uh, you know, obviously based on tools and not performance last year because he didn't play. Um, you know, I, I think the biggest question is, you know, how much power is he going to have? Is he going to be a, a 12 to 15 home run guy? Is he going to be more than that? Um, you know, we just don't know. He he's a little bit slender, but he can get stronger. He can maybe launch some more balls and. You know, we didn't really get any chance to see how he's going to do against pro pitching yet. But, you know, I think if he just goes out and has a solid year in A-ball somewhere and stays healthy and gets, you know, 500 or so at-bats, that that's a good development year for him.
4: Jim, uh, when you look at the Chicago White Sox system, they're ranked last uh, among all the teams right now. Uh, I guess that's pretty deceiving considering how many really outstanding young players they have uh, on their big league stage. Team, how many are under contract for a long period of time? Uh, how would you evaluate the White Sox system right now, knowing that uh, they are pretty well fortified at the major league level with with young players for a long period of time?
0: Yeah, no, I think that that's the way you look at it. I mean, they're definitely their farm system's pretty thin right now. They're rebuilding. But look, I mean, what's your farm system supposed to do? It's supposed to improve, you know, help your major league team get talent either via promotions or via trades. And they've done that. I mean, if it was just a few years ago, they had the, you know, number one ranked farm system in baseball. And they do have, I think, I haven't, uh, you know, ranked these, but like they do have one of the best situations in the big leagues with a lot of young talent, with a lot of guys under contract and locked up for a while. Um, and the farm system did its job, it, it's just it's it's very hard to maintain a top, top farm system and win at the big league level. I mean, we're seeing the Dodgers do it now, and we saw the Braves do it when they had their long string of, what was it, like 14 consecutive division titles or whatever it was. But usually, once you start to win, the farm system goes down. And, and really, I mean, that's the way baseball has it set up right now with the CBA. The more you win, the lower your draft picks are, uh, you have smaller bonus pool. You know, you can't really sp- outspend the bonus pool, and it's it's the same thing internationally. You know, it's it's not like before, where you could just go out and and go nuts on Luis Robert and and sign him. You know, and and pay a penalty tax. Now you you're limited in what you can do. So yeah, I mean, it's I, I think the White Sox would say the same thing. I'm, I'm I'm sure they don't think they necessarily have the worst ranked farm system. I know they've been last in just about everybody's rankings recently, but you know they they, they do have some interesting young guys. But it's not. I don't think they have a lot of immediate help. I think most of, the, you know, what we're going to see in the big leagues has gotten there for 2022. But you know, they have some super interesting young players, and they need them to develop. I mean, the, the key for them, I think, is going to be developing some homegrown pitching. You know, they they've spent a lot of money on some high school pitchers, all of whom struggled last year. And you know, the hope is that that those guys you know, kind of turn a corner this year and get going. You know, that that would be the, the Jared Kelly, Andrew Dahlquist, Matthew Thompson group.
3: Jim, a broad question about this work stoppage and how it affects maybe the development of some of these prospects, whether it's on the Cubs roster or the White Sox roster or around baseball, some of the top-rated prospects on the 40-man rosters who cannot, you know, report and cannot improve and cannot develop. How many how many of the baseball's top young players are being affected in a negative way if this the longer this goes on?
0: Um, i got to choose my words carefully, given my employer here. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, you, uh, I'd say, you know, I haven't counted them up, but if you look, we haven't done a new top 100 prospects list yet, and we won't until the lockout ends. But our, our season-ending one from last year has about 30, man, 30 guys on 40-man rosters. And, you know, I think, you know, I mean, there's – I don't know what the average number of prospects on a 40-man roster is, but let's say it's, you know, 10 or so per team. I mean that would be 300 guys, right there. Maybe that's a little bit light. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, in the short term, yes, it's not great for the development. In the long term, I'm assuming we're going to have a resolution. I don't have any inside information, but uh, you know, you know, sooner rather than later. I, I don't anticipate we're going to lose, you know, like two or three months of the season. So I, I think it's more just kind of put them on hold a little bit. Um, you know, you, you're seeing. You mentioned it in the intro. I mean, I think most teams are having, you know, it's not even mini-camps. Like, a lot of teams will have mini-camps for prospects before minor league camps open, which is in the next week or so. And this year, uh, I had I talking to somebody this week who joked about how they're having a not-so-mini-camp. They had 100, you know, minor leaguers in there because there's no big leaguers in camp. And, you know, they have, you know, big league. I think a lot of the big league coaches are working with prospects. So, I mean, it, it's not great if you're in a situation where you're on the 40-man roster and you can't. You'll get development time, but I mean, on the flip side of that, assuming that it gets resolved sometime, you know, either in the next week or or some point in March, I, I mean, it's not like you're going to lose that much in the long run. And I, I think most of those guys will get sorted out and, and begin this You know, if you're going to begin the season in the minor leagues, they'll, they'll probably still do that. I mean, this is just wild speculation, but let's say we have a a settlement and spring training. You know, spring training is already going to start late. You know, we might see. That team send prospects down to their minor league camp and their minor league teams, you know, sooner than they would otherwise, just because spring training's truncated and they want to focus on the guys on the big league team. So, I guess at this point, um, hopefully, I haven't got myself in trouble. I have no inside information, but I, I, I think we're going to see if you have a prospect who's on a 40-man roster who, say, looks like he's going to start the season in Double A. I'm hoping that we get everything resolved and that those guys will still open the season in Double A. You know, pitchers you might have that's, to might, might have to ramp up a little bit longer but the hitters I, I, I don't think it will really affect them much at all if we get something settled fairly soon
4: that's the voice of Jim Callas from MLB pipeline one of the top analysts if not the top analysts of draft and minor league players in the game and Jim what are your uh, views of international players like Colas, and uh, Cespedes with the White Sox, who are you know, lumped into you know, your evaluations of minor leaguers and where they're at. But they're, they're professional players that have already played in uh, professional ball in another country. And also, one is 23. The other is 24. That's going to be 25. Um, how, how do you look at them? And how, how different do you look at them as far as how quickly they can make it or should make it to the major leagues?
0: yeah I mean they're they're kind of their own special category because essentially they were professional players in Cuba for a while before they they left and and wound up making their way to the white sox and you know it's a lot different evaluating them than it is say you know Christian Hernandez of the Cubs, who who signed at age sixteen and and is their top international prospect I mean he has yet to play in the u s yet i mean it's totally different I mean you know both those guys are interesting uh you get some. Mixed reviews on them. When you talk to people outside the White Sox organization, um, you know I, I think we talked about Cespedes last year, and you know there were some questions. People wondered, you know, how good is the bat really? You know, he had struggled a little bit in, in the Can American Association, and and people wondered how how the bat would play. And and to his credit, I, I think he had I, I think he hit better than the most people expected he would have. You know, playing where he played, you know, this year, you know, he, he didn't control the strike zone particularly well. Um, but I, I think he hit a little bit better than, than some of his harsher critics might have thought. You know, Colossus, I think, is a little bit less athletic than Suspetus. He might have a little bit more, you know, power when, when all is said and done or, or be – he might be a little bit more advanced at the same age. But, you know, I, I think they're going to hope that Colossus can do the pass that Suspetus took. You know, they had to go through some VC issues with Suspetus, but he got to double A. You know, they got him to the fall league. Um, you know, I think Suspedes, realistically, Bruce, he probably needs a good amount of time in AAA. You know, he didn't really tear up the fall league. Um, you know, he wasn't as effective in AA as he was in high A. But my, my guess is he'll start the year in AAA, and Coloss will probably start the year in high A. And, you know, hopefully maybe Suspedes is ready to help by the end of the year and Coloss, you know, at some point, you know, in mid-2023.
3: Wow. Yeah, because you talk to any prospect, as we heard from Cespedes this week, and they will say, well, we're ready. He's ready to, to come up now sooner rather than later and make a contribution. But, boy, the White Sox are developing a pretty crowded outfield picture there when you're talking about stockpiling guys in the system and guys who might be coming up. But that's a nice problem to have, Jim. And I just wonder, there's so much curiosity about Colas, what, when he comes, what he looks like, and what exactly he's going to be as a kind of a – a prospect, not only how fast he gets there, but what he has to offer.
0: Yeah, and you just don't know because these guys have had a layoff. And, you know, it's funny. <laughs> I mean, they, they've, they've tampered this down because he's not going to pitch. But, you know, when, when Colas, you know, a year ago at this time, and everybody knew he it was kind of like the same deal with Suspedis where he was going to have to wait till the next signing period, but everybody knew he was going to sign with the White Sox pretty early on. <laughs> you know, you have a Cuban mystique to begin with. And on top of that, you know, Colas was the Cuban Otani. Well, I mean, now look at what Shohei Ohtani did last year. That was before Ohtani <laughs> had probably the greatest two-way season in, in in Major League history. I mean, nobody, you know, had the success doing both that Ohtani did. But, like, Colossus, I think he pitched, like, two or three innings his last year in Japan, and he's not going to pitch. But, like, I think that even heightened it, too. You know, I mean, if, if, if we were still calling him the Cuban Ohtani, I think White Sox fans would be going out of their mind wondering what this guy might be. And, you know, I, I think fortunately for Colossus, you know again he's not going to be a two-way guy nobody's calling him the cuban otani anymore but like the the hype would just be out of control because again i mean uh, otani i mean that was i don't even think without question the greatest two-way season in major league history last year
4: jim uh, when you when you look at the uh, chicago cubs and two guys that are have been at the very top of their uh, prospect list in marquez and in amaya we haven't got much information because of the lockout and they're on the 40-man roster. Um, what have you been able to dig up on their recoveries and expectations for them uh, playing and contributing and matriculating to the major leagues here over the next year or so?
0: Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of uncertainty around both those guys. I mean, Maya had Tommy John surgery toward the end of last season. I think that the hope with him is that he's going to be able to maybe come back and DH, you know, maybe, you know, in the middle of the season, the last couple of months, but probably, it doesn't sound like he's going to do much catching before, say, you know, instructional league or the league. Um, so, you know, I mean, just the throwing aspect of it, he's not going to be ready to throw in games for, for quite a while. And, you know, Marquez is, is just a huge enigma. I mean, look, we've talked, you know, a million times that for all the great things that, that Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer did with the Cubs and won a World Series. I mean, their, their inability to develop pitching has been unbelievable. I mean, you, you know, frankly, <laughs> you you almost couldn't develop less pitching if you tried. and, and obviously they've tried and, and then they're trying new things now, but Marquez a couple of years ago seemed like, okay, you know, this could be their first star homegrown pitcher. They developed in more than a decade. And Then, you know, we had the pandemic, and he came up and pitched once at the end of the year and and didn't throw strikes, which, I mean, I didn't read too much into that. And then last year, he he got COVID, and then when they were ramping him back up, he had some minor arm injuries, and he just never pitched. So, I mean, we've seen him pitch, you know, one outing in the last two years. So, you know, I haven't heard as much on him. Um, You know, a lot of teams, you know, for obvious reasons, are not talking about a lot of guys on the 40-man roster, but – they you know, the hope is that he's healthy and he'll be, you know, full go whenever the lockout ends and spring training gets gone and, and he's I think obviously a key guy. I am not expecting the Cubs to contend this year, but like their return to contention I think is gonna be really tied into how much their pitching develops with you know, I mean I, I think guys like Caleb Killian will get there before him, but Marquez has a higher ceiling than than Caleb Killian. I, I like Caleb Killian, he, he's more of a mid rotation guy. But if you want to dream on Marquez, you know he's that guy who could pitch, you know, at or near the front of a rotation, and they needed him healthy. You know, not just so he could be with B, but I mean, he needs innings. I mean, he's pitched, you know, literally. I mean, I guess he's probably did some stuff on the side, but in terms of actual official games, he's pitched in one game in the last two years.
3: Another few minutes with Jim Callis, the senior writer for MLB Pipeline here on Inside the Clubhouse with Bruce Levine and David Haunt until eleven o'clock. And Jim, you mentioned Killian and. We heard from him this week. He talked to Matty Lee at the Sun-Times, and sounds like he has spent some time in the Cubs' pitch lab. It sounds like he has gone in and they dove in and they're working with uh, a circle change. They're working with the curveball grip. They're working with a lot of things. He seems like a very committed, cerebral pitcher. He sounds like a guy who is going to help. I wonder, as you point out, maybe sooner rather than later, what, what is the time frame realistically for a guy like Killian? Yeah, I think we. I mean, <laughs> well, I, I was going to start say something. I mean, I guess it
0: depends on what the rules affecting service time are going to be too. I mean, if if the Cubs aren't contending, you know, that that could play a decision and whether you call him up in at, at midseason or not. I I think he's pretty close. Um, he he pitched really well in Arizona Fall League, and, and there wasn't a lot of good pitching down there. Um, you know, he had a, a terrible first out. Like he had, a, he got COVID. A lot of their Double A players got COVID in august last year and had a layoff and then he went to the fall league and i don't think he was quite 100 percent like i mean he was healthy in terms of covid but like in terms of having his arm ramped back up and having feel for his pitches so i think he gave up like six runs without getting anybody out his first outing down there and then after that he dominated and you know he's a guy whose stuff really came on in instructional league with the giants at the end of the 2020 season when he did pitch because of the COVID shutdown down the minors. You know, that was a good get for the, the Cubs in the trade. And, you know, he led the minors in strikeout to walk ratio last year. Um, you know, and it, it's a pretty good repertoire. You know, he's – it's a four-pitch mix. I mean, he's working on the, you know, the changeup. I, I think he's scrapped a slider and kind of gone with the cutter. But, like, he's got a good fastball that he really commands well and has some carry up in the zone. And he's got a curveball. Uh, you know, I think he's – He's, he's definitely the highest floor among all their starting pitching prospects. And, and I guess when I say that, and then I feel like, oh, man, I'm like, it feels like I'm trashing the ceiling, and I'm not. Um, but I, I think you know, he's proven the most of, of their pitchers. so I think we'll see him first, and then you're hoping you know, that the lefties, you know, Marquez has got the huge ceiling. D.J. Hurst is a super interesting young guy, too. And then Jordan Wicks, who they got in the draft last year. I think Jordan Wicks will move pretty quickly, too. Um, you know, they may need at least a couple of those guys to develop into solid big league starters to get back to contention. Because it's, I mean, they, they showed even when you have a great lineup, it's hard to just put together uh, a pitching staff of, you know, just by making trades and, and doing free agency. That's, that's very, very hard.
4: Jim, we appreciate your time as always. Uh, in closing with you, uh, after Stever and Lampert uh, for the White Sox, who can they they look to to count on in 2022 if they need fortification uh, in that bullpen or rotation uh, guys go down with injury after those two where where do White Sox fans look?
0: Ooh, uh, they, they may have to look to a trade. Um, to be honest, I mean I think they're probably their next closest guys would be somebody like Jason Billis who, who's pitched a little bit in Double A. Um, you know he might be one. Uh, you know, Emilio Vargas is kind of a sleeper, you know you know, more of a finesse righty than an overpowering righty, but you know, they, they don't have a lot. I mean, that's the problem with their system right now. You know, they've promoted all these guys to the big leagues and they've made some trade supplement. They don't have a lot of guys ready to step in. So, you know, if if they need a, a major addition or, or just somebody they feel like they can count on and Stever and Steven Lambert are up to the task, I think they're probably gonna have to go the trade route you know, if, if they're trying to win this year.
3: Thanks so much for your time, Jim. Have a great weekend and hope for good news on Monday. Yeah, I'm,
0: I'm hoping. You guys, too, enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk again soon. And and I, I assume next time we talk, the lockout will be over, whenever that is. <laughs> but uh, it's, I, I, I have no great insight on when it'll end, but, man, I, I'm hoping sooner rather than later.
3: Thanks, Jim. We all are. Jim Callis, the senior writer for MLB Pipeline, great insight into the prospects on both sides of town, Bruce. And one last point before we break here I think is interesting. You know, the fact that David Ross is in Mesa and Tony La Russa is in Glendale, these prospects are getting access to the major league staffs that may, they might not ordinarily have, which I think is not insignificant. And I asked Jim a question about the limitations of guys who are on the 40 who can't report. What about the progress of guys who are now there already in these mini camps being able to learn from the expertise and benefit from that, from major league managers.
4: It's a wonderful point, David. Uh, and it works the other way as well. Just the idea that, uh, when, uh, these managers and coaches and the major league staff get to, uh, their, their destinations in spring training, they really don't have much time to look at, uh, prospects uh, who come in usually the first week of March when the, uh, teams are already well immersed in the spring training and the, and the, uh, managers are, are really intent on trying to figure out who's going to be on that 26-man roster. This gives them an idea of the skill set of these young players and what to follow and the questions to ask during the season as uh, their mind starts working toward the future. So I think it's a, a huge benefit on both sides.
3: When will those major league managers actually be coaching major league players. We'll find out the latest in the negotiations between MLB and the players union. We'll go down to Florida. Ken Davidoff from the New York post joins us next inside the clubhouse, Chicago sports radio six, seven to the score. If I hadn't
0: um, given consideration uh, to What it would mean to miss games, I wouldn't be doing my job. Obviously, I pay attention to that. I I, I see missing games as a disastrous outcome for the for this industry, and we're committed to making an agreement in an effort to avoid that.
3: Welcome back inside the clubhouse, Chicago Sports Radio six seven four. David Hopper, Slavine, here until eleven o'clock. That was the voice of Rob Manfred talking this winter about the stakes of negotiations down in jupiter florida and the disastrous nature of cancellation of the sum of regular season games and it's time now to go out to our guest hotline presented by circa resort and casino in las vegas home of the world's largest sports book and that is where we find ken davidoff from the new york post good morning ken how are you
2: hey good morning guys just want to say jesse rogers says
4: hello
3: <laughs> all right. Jesse is the best, doing a great job down there. Tell him to, so buy, we'll... a, tell
4: him to buy lunch or dinner once in a while. When he's yeah, done it would to, be nice okay. if Jesse uh, took us all to dinner sometime on, uh, yeah, on, on the – Yeah, tell him uh, to open that wallet.
3: Ken, t- this morning in, in your – and it was posted last night, but your report of yesterday's proceedings – you say, basically, if you have tickets for opening day, don't get excited quite yet. Take solace, however, in the fact that Major League Baseball players and owners actually took a step forward Friday. How big of a step was it?
2: It was a small one, David. It was a small one, but it was big only relative to what transpired here the first four days of the Jupiter Summit. Uh, and, uh, because virtually nothing happened in those first four days, it was a gigantic waste of time or so it seemed So yesterday, at least they made some progress on, on one front and, and to be frank, one of the simpler fronts, but at least it was something.
4: Kenny, uh, first of all, thanks a lot for coming on. We appreciate it and, uh, enjoying, uh, reading all of your stuff from the meetings in your, uh, last few days of. Working for the New York Post, and all the best to you moving forward in your career. I, I want to uh, I want to ask you about uh, where we are with the competitive balance tax because to me, everything else is is pretty solvable. Yeah, the players need to get more money uh, initially coming in. They need to get their pool. They're going to get that uh, at some level. But to me, the competitive balance uh, tax is is and has always been the key, and we've heard very, very little about that in negotiations. Do you uh, expect that to be a big part of conversations over today, tomorrow, the next day, however long it takes to really start moving that number up to a a point where the the players can accept a a deal?
2: First of all, thank you for the kind words. It's been a pleasure being uh, your friend and colleague all these years, and we will continue to be friends. Uh, to answer your question, uh, Bruce, that's that's the key to this whole thing. I agree with you a thousand percent, the competitive balance tax. And if it's not a big topic these next three days, then shame on both sides. Shame on both sides, because the bottom line is uh, the owner's current offer is ridiculous uh, on that uh, matter. There's no way in heck the player should ever accept it. The player's offer, I would not say is ridiculous, but it's, it's high, and they, there's certainly room for them to go down so uh, a a pox on both houses if they don't tackle the competitive balance tax tax in these next three days
3: Ken, I think this may be maybe it sounds like a dumb question but but it's one that came to mind yesterday Rob Manfred does fancy himself a deal maker he shows up Friday and understandably it it commands most of the attention in the headlines why did it take him until Friday? to get there, to to inject himself into the process?
2: That's a very fair question, David. I, I can't give you a great answer. Uh, bottom line is Rob Manford has largely sat out these negotiations from an in-person perspective. Uh, obviously, he's, he's been you know very involved in, in ownership strategies and, and apparently has been here most of the week in Florida. He was out of our sight uh, until yesterday. Yesterday was the first time he engaged with anyone on the PA side. It was Tony Clark. Uh, yeah, I think we all know that Rob has been a galvanizing force for the players. Uh, they hate him. They despise him. And they are united in that uh, hatred. For He's been quite an asset for the players. And it's really a, a, a huge uh, indictment of his time as commissioner uh, that that's how things are.
4: You know, some of the agents I've talked to, some of the players I've talked to uh, can believe that the owners are – using this year as a litmus test to see if um, they can start a season later and then use that as precedent for 150 or 154 game season for the future not just to uh, not not just to not pay the players the same amount but to uh, to really do away with a little bit of April because it's such a uh, a, a drag after opening day in so many markets what, what are your thoughts about? that type of interpretation, and how baseball may move forward with that. I
2: think that's a very fair interpretation. I think we all know you guys are in Chicago, for crying out loud. Once you get past the the, the glamor and grandeur of opening day, April is a sinkhole. I mean, you know, uh, any player who takes a truth serum is gonna make it, he doesn't like playing in April. And, you know, even in LA, oh uh, yeah, it's, it's workable, but it's still, you know, 60 as opposed to 70. Uh, so it's 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 suboptimal conditions everywhere uh so yeah that is a it's a huge issue in general and i, I agree with your sources and people have said the same thing to me that yeah by and large april is, is the worst month it's rough with the postponements the delays the low crowds kids are still in school and yeah there could be a way to figure out a way and the players have have supported the idea of going to One fifty-four. Of course, they still want to get paid for 162. uh, But that is something the sport does need to tackle in the long term.
3: We're visiting with Ken Davidoff from the New York Post here and inside the clubhouse. Bruce Levine, David Haw here until 11. And Ken, I don't know what role this plays, uh, if any, but this week we heard from, it was reported down in Atlanta, the Braves have record revenues. I know they have a new ballpark and they're World Series champions and they're coming off a great year. But when their profits exceed one hundred million dollars, and the owners are negotiating with players, ooh, that that is one of those things when you have uh, that that reality reported. Does that play any role in this process?
2: I certainly think it can help further unite and galvanize the players. Yeah, that, that so everyone took note of that uh, report yesterday, and yeah, it certainly does call into question this ownership narrative. Oh, uh, yeah, we're not making as much money as you think. Like really? All right, here's the Atlanta Braves, the one team with public information. They seem to be doing just fine. So, uh, yeah, do I think Tampa Bay Rays are making money hand over fist? I don't, but that's why they have the revenue-sharing plan in place uh, to, to help a team like that. And the bottom line is are very uh, smart uh, business people who own these teams. And I get there's the ego trip of owning a team, but you, know, you don't continue to own a team if it's uh, a lost leader.
4: Ken, uh, when you look at uh, baseball and how uh, the union is concentrating on getting money for young players paid early, how they're uh, concentrating on on getting a bonus system for the top young players, and how we know the superstars of the game are making uh, money in the $30-$40 million now with the Scherzer contract, is the union missing the point? When it comes to the middle class player, and do they risk pushing the middle player, middle range player, the the good veteran player that makes five, six, eight million dollars a year out of the game totally because of the fact that uh, the the uh, owners may likely instruct their top um, officials to say, look, if they want young players, give them young players. We're going to pay those young players and The middle-range players, we're not going to have the five, six, eight million dollars for them in the future. Uh, Could the could the union possibly be overplaying their hand?
0: Yeah.
2: Yes, and it's interesting, Bruce, because I think the remedy for what you're saying. First of all, I don't think the owners would need to say that to the front of their front office. The front office are pretty smart; they can figure that out for themselves. Uh, And but I do think what could help that player, the player I was using, a New York guy. Uh, to, for that, to personify that that class is Todd Frazier, right? Because he, Todd Frazier, uh, just fell off a cliff financially. You know, he had a big contract with the Reds, then he became a free agent and got like a two-year, I think it was $18 million deal with the Mets, if I remember, and he was stunned that he didn't do better. I was like, well, Todd, people can kind of see the end coming with you. Uh, you know, and then he followed that up with a tiny contract, and that's pretty much out of baseball. So, and I think what would help that class of player most is a salary floor which the uh, owners did propose earlier in these talks. It quickly went away because the, the CBT was ridiculously low. Uh, but I, I think that's a concept that the union should entertain moving forward.
3: Before we let you go, Ken, so when I brought the show in today, I, I compared Rob Manfred's role in being brought into the process to a closer. It's a ninth inning. They need him to close this out it, with the – you know, a victory for everyone, but in the New York context, is he going to be more Mariano Rivera or Mel Rojas? What do you project in the next couple of days?
2: Uh, David, I reject the concept that he's a closer. He's more like when you're losing uh, six to two in the fifth inning and you need someone to come in there and just just keep the game game alive. That was Rob's role in this thing. You know, that, not not a mop. Of, you know, I mean, just keep the game close. You know, we still got a chance here, but you know, we, we need to shut them down. So that that I think that's who Rob was yesterday. Whatever, whoever you want to use. Uh, you know, Ramiro Mendoza for Yankees fans back in the day. Uh, so uh, that's that, that's who I think Rob was.
4: As you as you uh, you uh, write out the last few days of working at the Post, and uh, I'm hoping you stay in baseball. But whatever you do, I know it's going to be a bit, huge success. Um, would you prefer that baseball changes the, uh, the name of their uh, top official to the CEO of uh, MLB rather than commissioner? Because uh, David and I talked earlier in the show about the fact that commissioner doesn't really represent anything like Landis uh, or, uh, you know, even uh, the Bart Giamatti's of the world uh, later on in, uh, in the 80s. Uh, it, it's, it's more polarized than ever.
2: That's an interesting question, Bruce. I would suggest instead of changing a title, we change the person and <laughs> someone who's more of an ambassador for the game. Look, Bud Bud <laughs> obviously was an owner, uh, but I, I think now in retrospect, with time, like we understood that Bud had he had uh, what's the word? I'm um, hand with the player. Like the players took him seriously because they knew he had run a team. Like you know, Paul Molitor and Robin Yount it would have done anything for him. Uh, And I think I think Manford lacks that gravitas, you know, he just lacks that that street cred. I think that's what the term I was originally Mm
4: -hmm. going
2: for. Uh, So they need someone like that, whether it's another owner or, you know, I remember Robert Iger was in consideration back in the day. Someone like that. I think what Manford is proving is that it, it probably in many cases doesn't make sense to promote your number two to number one. When you're talking about this job in particular, you need someone who's who brings a little more to the party.
3: Ken, great job. Best of luck, and thank you very much for your time.
2: Thanks, guys. Be good.
3: Ken Davidoff from the New York Post joining us from Jupiter, Florida, and uh, with his thoughts and reporting on between MLB and the Players' Union.
4: He doesn't pull any
3: punches. No, he does not. He makes some really good points as well. And we will close out inside the clubhouse. I want to talk to you, Bruce, about what we spoke about in Haw. White Sox prospect, crowded outfield. Where does Oscar Colas? where does Yoki Cespedes, where do they fit in? We'll talk about it next. Inside the clubhouse, Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The Score. Oscar's on his
4: way. He'll be here shortly. He'll be here in the next week with with our staff and and our other players that are there. Based on the feedback that, that I've received from our staff down there that he's He's a talent, he's got some confidence about him, can handle the bats and power, good instincts for the game. But really when he gets over here, I, I want him just to be cool He he hasn't gone through a, a season in professional baseball or certainly with the White Sox. So I want him to, you know, to, to blend in with his teammates, get to know the staff, understand what we're about as an organization, really drilling the identity of our organization with Oscar. <music>
3: back inside the clubhouse. Chicago Sports Radio 670. It's for David Levine. That was the voice of Chris Getz. And we heard from the White Sox director of minor leagues earlier this week, Bruce. And we talked about this on Mully and Ha. Okay, real quickly. Oscar Colas on the way. Yoki is already there. Wants to be part of the major league team in this year. Mike Adolfo on the 40-man roster. Oh, by the way, so was Andrew Vaughn. So is Gavin Sheets. So is Adam Engel. What's going on in right field? It's a very crowded picture, especially when you're going to insert Chris Bryant or Michael Conforto
4: in that picture. What's going on, Bruce? You're forgetting about trades, David. And I think oh. that the White Sox are one of those Ooh. teams that have some depth that you're talking about. They might have the depth. They might have the depth of right-handed hitting that allows them to make make a move or two. Uh, and, uh, and bring in uh, some pitching or an outfielder uh, from another team that we're not looking at right now? I mean, can, can, they, can they make a deal with, uh, with one of those middle-range teams right now uh, who don't necessarily uh, want to load up on um, veteran players? I mean, can you, can you trade with uh, uh, somebody outside of your division and bring in players that are going to help you solidify your chance to win the World Series. I think that's where the White Sox are at. Uh, you know, They're going to have to take a risk. If you traded in an Andrew Vaughn for a top flight starting pitcher or, or a uh, top flight right fielder from another team, uh, would, would it be the end of the world? Uh, I mean, he, everybody thinks he's going to hit, and he's going to hit a lot. But uh, is, is that the type of move that the White Sox need to really look at knowing that their window right here for the World Series is over the next two. Well, your point's
3: well taken because they have a surplus of prospects at one position. So they got a stockpile, if you will, and they need a strong starting pitcher. They need a second baseman. They need some things that they currently don't have. So when you have as many right field possibilities as I just mentioned, yeah, you want to use them possibly as a trade piece. Which guy do you think is most likely? Is it Vaughn to be dealt, Mike or Adolfo, with somebody you mentioned yesterday as a potential throw-in in a trade? How does the list rank if you're talking about most tradable assets?
4: Look, David, if you want something good, you're going to have to trade something good. That, that's always been the weakness in myself and other people when we, when we put up trades or you know we listen to our great listeners and they say, can we get this for that? And the, usually the answer is no. You, you, it has to hurt you a little bit to be able to move somebody to get someone really good back. And if you traded a guy like Vaughn, and I'm not even saying they're suggesting trading Vaughn. I'm not. Right. Uh, what I'm saying is there are probably 20 other teams out there that would look at Vaughn and go, man, that's our first baseman for the next 10 years. He's the next Paul Goldschmidt. Okay, That's how you would look at him and, and try to project him. And uh, I don't know if the White Sox, you know, have the wherewithal that they want to move Vaughn because they love him a lot, too. That's also a fault for major league uh, front offices is that they fall in love with their own guys and they don't want to move them. Everybody does. Fans do.
3: Executives do. And I don't know that if I'm doing that as well by saying that, you know what, Andrew Vaughn and Gavin Sheets are guys who, you need to appreciate what they accomplished last year and just how good they could possibly be with more seasoning, with more experience because these guys were both rookies and it's easy to forget when we don't have the baseball, right. you know, in our face all off season long. I, that's the only thing I was saying yesterday yeah. I and mean, the point Look, that I think is is Bears repeating.
4: If Rick Hahn was sitting here right now and it was off the record, he'd say, "Are you out of your mind trading Vaughn?" Right. Jose Abreu is in his walk year now at age 35, okay? Andrew Vaughn is going to be a spectacular star for us as a first baseman or an outfielder for the next seven, eight years. Um, we're not trading Andrew Vaughn. I think that's the answer you would get. However, when you're looking at trying to win a World Series, does your perspective change? Does your long-term look at your team change? Are you looking to to grab that uh, brass ring right now and say, you know what? Yep. Uh, the Cubs didn't want to trade Glaber Torres. They didn't want to trade Eloy. They didn't right. want to trade Cease. They yep. are huge parts of our team and the Yankees team. But guess what? They won a World Series in 2016. Bruce, I sure hope we're talking about what the White Sox need to do to their roster
3: and what they're able to do next week when we reconvene on Inside the Clubhouse because that would mean there's an agreement, that would mean there's roster movement, that would mean there's excitement and optimism in the air, which I think is hard to find right now, but hey, we have until the deadline
4: and that is Monday. Sounds good. David, uh, people can follow me on Twitter at Levine. also uh, writing White Sox and Cubs minor leaguers mostly right now on our website at 670thescore.com. Uh, Cesar did a great job for us producing as usual. We have other people to thank. Yes, thank
3: you to PCA Pete Crow Armstrong, the Cubs outfield prospect for joining us. Thank you to Jim Callis, the senior writer for MLB Pipeline, and thank you for Ken Davidoff's contributions from the New York Post. This was a fun show, Bruce, and thank you to the listeners and texters and everybody out there in the audience who listened. And most of all, thank you, to you Bruce, and we'll talk to you this week. Hoff, Monday morning, 5 o'clock. We'll be here all week. Hopefully, we'll have a resolution in baseball. Have a great afternoon, everybody. Steve Rosenblum, Mike Esposito next right here. Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The Score.